welcome to What. It's the part documentary, part competition podcast. I am your host, Ellie Main, and as always, I have Chelsea Harfouche with me. Chelsea, how are you? I'm good. I mean, I'm like a little bit hurt that you, you're not like delighted to have me. You're not like you're I'm so always excited to, to hear you. my voice. You're like, and then also, no, on the line. That's unfair. I'm always excited to have you. Oh. Well, you didn't have to say that, but thanks. I must tell you, though, I'm 100% abdicating my responsibility this week. In what way? That I am passing the buck, if you will, sure. of bringing a topic to my dad. Oh, you didn't even you didn't even have a topic? No, I'm guest this week. Okay, well then, like, hold on, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to What? It's our weekly edutainment podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Harfouche, and with me, as always, is Christopher Maine. How are you, Chris? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm cool. Thank you. Classic Chris over here. We we love that energy that he brings to the table every <laughs> single week. And with us this week... Did you just fire me? <laughs> you said you were uh, passing the bug. I'm just rising to the occasion. That's fair. That's fair. And I'm only feeling slightly mocked. <laughs> no, she's not mocking you, Dad. She's 100% mocking me. I mean, when in doubt, I'm always mocking Ellie. <laughs> so please don't feel bullied. This week, we have the brilliant and lovely and never bullied Eleanor Maine. Eleanor, how are you? Yes. Oh my gosh. Pleasure to be here. Oh, I was so excited that you invited me on this one week. Yeah. Oh my God. I am so nervous to listen to the topics and to, to choose a winner. What? And I have... No skin in the game. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't get bogged down with the points. Just know it's supposed to be kind of fun, and yeah, it's like it's like jazz. Dad, thank you for thank you for coming <laughs> on the podcast. Jesse's furious. Oh, yes. my mom will be furious when this episode comes out. I want you to know I'm going to get in so much trouble that your dad, who does not live in the same country as us, is on the podcast before my mom. I might get murdered. Jesse is a self-proclaimed whatchamacallit. And I let her know that dad was going to be on this week. And she was like, <laughs> furious. I was going to really commit to calling you Chris, but then Ellie keeps calling you dad, which does make sense. And like, I'm not, right. I'm not criticizing you, Ellie, but are the audience you... going to get confused? Like who's dad? Who's Chris? If you hear the name Chris, that is my dad. I'll be calling him dad for the duration. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, good. That's what we needed. Yes. Okay. So it's only three of us on this thing. Yeah. I am one of those three people. Chelsea I am... is not my dad. I am Chris and also dad. Yeah. It is kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah. We've got three people and four names. Yeah, exactly. That's hard. It's, it's I've got two you. of them. It's up to you, dear listener, to decipher <laughs> our riddle. into the mini game then the mini game is when the contestants if you will the panelists share the title of their topic and we all get to guess what it could be about and chelsea as a as you know part of it why don't you go first? as veteran <laughs> as veteran yeah sure uh my topic which i'm so excited to share with the two of you and also your mom who's here uh she but off camera lurking. off off my yeah yeah i see She's a presence yeah. is the grandest london tavern Ooh. Gordon's is the oldest wine bar, right? On Villiers Street. Yes, I think it is. Yes, like medieval. Yeah, it's real old. Very small ceilings. The gra it's right. not the oldest, though. It's the grandest. The grandest. The grandest London tavern. Is it like, there's not a ta like tavern at the Tower or at Buckingham Palace. Oh, wouldn't that be great if the Queen just had her own pub? I'm, su I'm surprised she doesn't. The Monarch and Flunkies. The Monarch and Flunkies. So it's not that. 
It is actually not that though. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a misnomer, so I'm excited oh. for us to like really uh, get into not it. Not really a tavern. Oh, it's not really in London. Or it's not really grand. You guys have nailed the three possibilities. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is definitely in London because that would be a weird lie to tell. But the other things I think you've probably, they could be flexible. For some reason, the only pub that I can think of right now is the Blackfriars, that one that's like a real skinny little triangle guy. On the north side of the bridge. But yeah. And on the other side of the bridge is one called Doggett's Coat and Badge. Who's that? That's a sort of a heraldry thing. That's on on the south side of Blackfriars Bridge. Okay, Dad, what's your title? My title is One Amazing Voyage for Mankind. Ooh. Is it about Daphne ama- du Maurier? <laughs> uh, no. That is a solid guess, though, Charles. Look, I'm no. working with what I know, okay? Well, obviously, I'm thinking the moon. So it's not about the Apollo missions. No, it isn't. But it's about something that happened at the exact same time. Oh, in the... Okay. So we're talking, like, Cold War era is that am i right yeah yes, uh, towards, right. The, the, end of, towards the end yeah, of the end of the 60s yeah yeah what was going on at the end of the 60s other than the cold war i mean i really feel that kind of stole most of the most is that the when news. you were born i was alive then yeah i was um uh, let's see i was oh. eight when the moon landings took oh, place oh nice well i thought it would have just been fun if you had kind of like misunderstood the format of the podcast and you're like i'm gonna tell the story of my life what an amazing voyage. Oh, my amazing voyage into the world. Isn't that what yeah. your mum keeps wanting to do is to bring a personal story? She does want to, okay, to be fair, some really cool things have happened to my mom, but I do keep trying right. to tell her. It's like, it's not a personal storytelling podcast. It is yeah. Yeah. It's like an educational topic podcast. My amazing voyage, how I changed the world. Yeah. <laughs> is it anything to do with yeah. the lesser known British space story? You guys uh, did space stuff? Uh, yeah, we did. But, you know, it was kind of quite low key. In fact, no, but it is a British, British story. It's a British, it's a British story, yes. A British and European story. Is it about somebody swimming the channel? I uh, know, but also I suppose the word voyage would suggest that it doesn't yet yeah, involve maritime thing. I mean, you've stumped me. Very excited to find out. Do you want to go first? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The reason that I kind of thought about this was because Ellie told me that you guys were going to cover the moon landing on your podcast. It's true. Uh, 50th episode. Yeah. So the one giant leap for mankind or giant step for mankind, whatever it was. And so I was thinking about uh, something that happened at the same time, which was the first guy to circumnavigate the world single-handedly in a sailing boat. Oh, wait, that had never been done before. That had never been done before 1969. And in fact, the winner of that challenge arrived back in England in April 1969. So almost exactly the same time as the oh. as the moon landing. There's like a classic novel, right? It's like around the world in 80, 80 days. That's yeah, but in fact, this took 300 days. Okay, um, so that one's fiction months. is what you're saying. I always just assumed that yeah. meant it's like happening all the time. <laughs> Isn't that a Jules Verne? Jules Verne, yeah. But so this, the year before, in 1967, a guy called Francis Chichester went round the world on his own in a sailing boat, but he stopped in Australia for repairs. Lame. So the only thing that was still left to be done was to do it without stopping. Oh, just all the way through? To go all the way around. So to set, oh, off, from the, okay. set off from the UK in your sailing boat and sail all the way around the world. Imagine a, a map of the world. Sailing around the world means heading from the UK down the Atlantic to the bottom of Africa, okay. and then round the bottom of South Africa, and then across the Southern Ocean. So like between Australia and the Philippines, or do you go under Australia or over it? Yeah, well, you go past Australia, basically, and then round Cape Horn, down the Southern okay. Ocean, round Cape Horn, and then back up the Atlantic again, 
It's about a 30,000 mile voyage. Oh, it's too long. That's a long old way. The part in the Southern Ocean is super tough. That's the part of the South of South America. Yeah, between the bottom of South Africa and the bottom of South America is a really, really tough bit of uh, ocean because it's incredibly rough, incredibly windy. Very choppy. You have to be a really intrepid sailor to even really want to go there. Immediately terrifying to me. Oh, yeah. Maybe you have some insight into this, being a a boatsman. (laughs) I think back to, like, I've been on, like, a couple cruises. Uh, (laughs) They were trash. (laughs) And, you know, like, that's, like, such a giant boat that even when the water was choppy, they had, like, hydraulics that kind of kept everything sort of relatively stable but even that I found to be kind of frightening right like and that was like Caribbean so it was like warm water like relatively calm I literally (laughs) don't think I understand how like a small craft can go up and down like you know like a 10 or 15 foot swell without dying they're much bigger than that oh really the waves are often over 10 meters high (gasps) how many feet is that 33 Oh, I don't like I don't like that even one bit. We're talking 50, 60, 70 mile an hour winds. Uh, <gasps> so like how? How what? How do they stay afloat? How do yeah, how do you do it without dying? Do you know? <laughs> uh, up to a point. I mean, I'm not personally, I have to say, and I don't have any wish to, I've no wish to do this. I mean, I think it's amazing that people do, but um, mm. for me sailing should be fun. Um, and relaxing and enjoyable, you know. I mean, I'm more of a Mediterranean, Greek islands, gin and tonic kind of guy when it comes to sailing, rather than 30-foot waves in the Southern Ocean. No, thank you. But I have admiration for people to do. Anyway, what was amazing about this event was that it has kind of everything in terms of a story because it's got amazing characters. It's 68. The Sunday Times decided to have a competition called the Golden Globe competition, called the Golden Globe Race. So they said, right, you guys, you need to set off in 1968 between the 1st of June and 31st of October to do this trip around the world. And there's a prize for the first guy to get back and also the person who did it the fastest. And that could be different because there was... Because there was a a three-month window. you know, When you're allowed to leave? Yeah, four-month window. If you went earlier, you probably would have better weather. So it was a bit risky going later. Mm-hmm. Nine people actually responded to this challenge. Five Englishmen, a Scotsman, two Frenchmen and an Italian. And they set off in a great variety of different sorts of boats. You had a couple of guys who actually in 66 had rowed the Atlantic together. Aww. They were soldiers, military guys. Mm-hmm. And one was an officer and uh, who's a guy called John Ridgway. And he took his a sergeant along probably to do most of the rowing. Yeah. Uh, who's a Scotsman called Che Blythe. <laughs> And Che Blythe actually became a very famous adventurer and sailor sort of off the back of this or, 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 oh, cool. or after this. But at the time, amusingly, he'd never actually sailed a boat ever. What? Okay. <laughs> after the Atlantic race, Che Blythe felt that Ridgeway had got all the glory being the kind of the senior guy, whereas he'd probably done more of the Most rowing. of the work, yeah. <laughs> and they both went in almost identical but completely unsuitable boats. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And neither of them got very far in the race. They had to retire quite early. And then you had a guy called Robin Knox Johnson, who was a British merchant marine captain. And these guys were all quite young. So Ridgeway, 29, Blythe, 27, Robin Knox Johnson, 28. And he had a very old boat. Originally, he was going to get a better boat to do this challenge in. But Mm -hmm. he was trying to sell his old boat and he couldn't. And he couldn't raise the money to build a new boat either. So he went in the boat that he owned, which was, again, rather unsuitable. Um, It was a a 32-foot a wooden sailing boat that he'd had built in India. It was very heavy oh. and very slow and, and, you would think and that very small. If you're about to take on something so massive, you'd probably get the right kind of boat. You would think. And some of them did. 
Okay. Um, another guy that was in the race, another English guy, was a guy called Bill King, and he was 57, so much older. But he'd been a submarine captain during the Second World War. So Tight. he's one of the few people actually to survive that for the whole war and come out the other side. Yeah. And he actually had a boat that was specially designed for the race. That's what you want. And it was unusual in that it was junk rigged. There's another Navy guy, Nigel Tetley, he was 45. He was a Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander. Okay. And he actually lived on his boat. Oh, I shall sail my house across the world. I get that. Decide to sail the family home round the round the world. That's pretty cool. And his boat was a trimaran. That is a three-hulled boat. So a trimaran has like a hull on each side, kind of like floats, you know. So if you're thinking of um, like if you had a sidecar on a motorcycle, yeah, exactly. On both but, sides. Yeah, on both sides. Yeah, so like having floats on both okay. sides, and it's to help to keep the boat upright. Now we're getting into it. There was another guy called. Donald Crowhurst, an English electronics engineer who made navigation equipment, so sort of handheld radio direction finder things that helped oh. you find before the invention of GPS. His business wasn't going terribly well. Nobody wanted to buy these things. And I think he sort of thought if he did this round-the-world challenge that uh, he would get some publicity for his business. Oh, for sure. And he was a bit of a sailor, but only kind of, you know, weekends around the Bristol Channel. <laughs> he got a boat built to do this, another trimaran, quite similar to Nigel Tetley's. Uh, and these trimarans, by the way, were made of plywood. And so these things were were quite lightly constructed. Like an Ikea kitchen. It's the cheapest wood you can get at Home Depot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they were made of that, but which is kind of odd thing to set off into the Southern Ocean with. Yeah. Um, uh, so then you had a couple of French guys, and both the French guys had steel boats, which sounds a bit more like it. Yeah. Probably the most experienced sailor in the race was a guy called Bernard Moitissier. Winner? Moitessier. Yeah. He was an eccentric. He had been brought up in Vietnam and he kind of like got fed up with uh, living there. And so he literally just set off, set sail and left when he was 20 years old. Very cool. And he never had a job. He just believed in sailing and being free. Amazing. <laughs> Look, I was just here for a good time, you guys. I don't give a fuck. He wrote a lot of books about <laughs> philosophy and stuff like that. He was a real free spirit. There was very little technology in this race. The only thing that anybody took that was electronic was a radio. That's news. wild. Martessier did not take a radio. He didn't take no. one. He's like, no, no, I'm good. His method of communicating was to put little messages in metal film cans, you know, okay. like old school yeah. eight millimeter film cans, uh -huh. and fire them onto the decks of freighters with a catapult. <laughs> That's how he got his story out to the world. Then there was another uh, French guy, he didn't actually last very long in the race, who had a smaller steel boat. And then the last guy was an Italian guy called Alex Carrozzo, who was quite an experienced sailor, and he had a 66-foot boat specially built for the race. That's a big one. Yeah, in a theory, he had the best boat. Mm -hmm. Normally, a yacht has a single keel, which goes right. down the middle of the boat with a big weight on the bottom. Big, heavy guy. And it keeps the thing stable. So Ridgeway and Blythe, they had these fiberglass bilge keel yachts Bilge keels are where you have two keels, one on sort of each side of the bottom of the boat. Nowadays, most boats are made of fiberglass. Because it's so light. Leisure yeah. boats, yeah, it's light yeah. and strong. But in the 60s, it was the brand new material. They didn't really know quite how to design them. In a sailing boat, you have a mast, and what stops the mast from falling over is these metal rope called shrouds and stays that basically hold the top of the mast to the sides of the boat and to the front and the back of the boat okay. to stop it falling over. Those have to be attached to plates that are attached to the hull. And so the hull has to be strong enough to take those uh, forces. So if you don't know what you're doing with fiberglass, they could just rip out. And that's what happened. So the, 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 the shroud plates started ripping out of the side of the boat. They're out. Uh, so they're out because they just went in completely unsuitable <laughs> boats. Bougeron and King was subject to what happens when you go out into sea in a small boat. Because you, you're talking about how do you do that? You know, how do you survive that? If you get involved in a storm in a sailing boat, you can suffer what's called a knockdown. And that's where the wind blows so strongly, it just blows your boat over. Right. 
Even if you've got a big old keel? Yes, and if you've got a big central keel, your boat will right again. Right. Because if you think about it, once yeah. it's gone horizontal, then the weight of the keel will pull, pull the it. boat back upright. Okay. The problem is that you're quite likely to sustain serious damage and or if it's never happened to you before, you will totally lose your nerve because it's uh, about the scariest yeah. thing that could ever happen to you. And so that is what happened to Fougeron and King. Uh. They had knockdowns uh-huh. and gave up. And they didn't like it. <laughs> Officially spooked, heading home. Yeah. <laughs> and then Carrozzo, who had the best boat, gave up because he got sick. He uh. had an ulcer. Okay, I got ulcer all the time. I don't give up. He had to pack it in after six weeks. He had basically four guys who seriously competed for this race. So you've got Catapult Man. So you've got Catapult Man, who had Bernard. probably the strongest boat. Fan um, fave. And the fastest boat. And he was also the most experienced sailor. So you could say that Bernard was the favourite. And in fact, he was the bookie's favourite okay. beforehand. Hell yeah. You've got Robin Knox Johnson, who is um, an accomplished sailor. And although his boat is slow, he was very strongly built and actually capable of surviving the Southern Ocean. Okay. And he left very early. He left um, right at the beginning of June. So he was always the leader. So it was hair and the tortoise. He was doing the tortoise. So he was probably just trying to do the first bat. He knew he wouldn't be the fastest, but he thought he wanted to be the first. Okay. And then you had the two trimaran guys. So going back to what we're talking about, about surviving the Southern Ocean in a small boat. The thing about a trimaran is, because it's got these two enormous floats, it actually stays more upright. Yeah, the bigger surface area. Yeah, and actually a sailing boat goes faster if it stays more upright. But the problem with a trimaran is, if you get knocked down in a boat with a keel, Uh... you will right. That will not happen in a trimaran because there's no keel, there's no weight to do that. And so if you come off a 33-foot wave, not so yeah. good. You're... And the danger is not when you're across the wind, uh-huh. it's when the wind is behind you because the wind is pushing your sails. And if you're not careful, you'll just like go and do a somersault. <gasps> no! It's called pitch poling. And if that happens, there's no way of recovering it. Is there any way of recovering you? <laughs> no. No, no, you've had it. You're a dead man if you pitch pole in a trimaran in the Southern Ocean. <laughs> oh. So so you've got to be, be a good enough sailor to make sure you don't do that. And a little high-risk, high-reward situation. Nigel Tetley, who's the, the Royal Naval Lieutenant Commander, was actually a brilliant sailor. Being and a he Naval got Lieutenant his, Commander. He got his trimaran all the way around Cape Horn. Oh, and so actually, he did the Southern Ocean. He did the Southern Ocean. He got almost all the way around. And we'll talk about what happened in the end just in a second. Oh, crikey. And that leaves uh, Mr. Crowhurst, who was the crazy inventor guy. The inventor who bloke. also had a trimaran. Because he was an inventor, he had decided that he could modify his trimaran to make it safer by having this um, inflatable airbag at the top of the mast. So okay. if you kind of pitch-poled or you went over, the bag would inflate like an airbag in a car. And pop you, know, you back. And stop your mast from going under the water. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. And this was going to be computer-controlled. And this is where the parallel this with the moon the landing 60s. is interesting. Yeah, so they had enough <laughs> computer power to, to get to the moon. This was when a computer was like a whole room. Yeah, it was like a wardrobe. You know, it's three <laughs> wardrobes in a room, wasn't it? Yeah. So, but he thought he could do this kind of computer-controlled thing. But he actually left on the very last day you were allowed to go, on October the 31st, because his, bo- his boat was not ready. Uh, and, he, and he had this airbag thing up there, but he'd not connected up any of the wiring because he just hadn't had time. And, and so Ooh. he left with his boat seriously half finished. Ooh, oh, that's good. not what you want. And the idea was he would fix it as he was going along. But it's kind of tough when you've got to do everything on your own. Yeah. Um, My money is definitely on Martinez. Martissier. Martissier. And who's Martinez? On Martissier. (laughs) As the race progressed, Martissier was always gaining. And Mox Johnson, he's always faster. He was one with the boat. Yeah, he had the the right boat and he had the right skills. This is no problem for me. (laughs) I am quite fast. 
technically, I'd say, was absolutely masterful in a completely unsuitable boat and dangerous boat to be on, really, in the Southern Ocean. Right. He made it, and it's an incredible feat of seamanship. Amazing. What he did, I think. Crowhurst realised quite early on in the piece, three or four weeks in, he was never going to do it. Oh. Because his boat was half finished. He didn't really know himself enough what he was doing. Yeah. He said it was just like a weekend hobbyist. Yeah. He got himself in totally over his head. Uh, he had further problems because he borrowed all the money to buy this boat. And in the end, because he underestimated and had to go back to the guy for more money, he had Ooh. to give him a charge over his house and over his business. Oh. And what, it was like collateral. It was collateral. And the terms of that deal were that if he did not finish the race, he would have to forfeit all those things <gasps> to pay for the debt. And this was a guy who was married with four kids. Oh, <laughs> she was pierced. <laughs> the, the, the stakes for him were very high. If he didn't finish the race, he would lose everything. And so he, he was caught. He knew that his boat was not good enough and that he was probably not good enough and that he could not take this boat through the Southern Ocean. He would die. And he can't go back with and the And he can't go back legs. because he would be ruined. So he had the choice between being ruined and, and almost certain death. Yeah. He decided that there could possibly be a third option. Oh. And the third option is, and this is again an interesting parallel with the space race, the third option was based on the incredibly primitive nature of the technology at that time. Because not only did you not know really where you were yeah, with any great degree of accuracy, nobody else knew either. Nobody knew where you were. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Wait, so even like the officiators of the race? Nobody knew where you were. And uh, Knox Johnson had a problem with, he took a radio, but his radio packed up shortly after he passed New Zealand. And as a result... So you'd be, you'd be radioing back with your like, yes, long, you're radioing your position. longitude. You'd radio your position to say you were okay to the sort of nearest country. And those messages were being sent back to the Sunday Times and obviously to family and so on. This. Knox Johnson's radio packed up after he left New Zealand. And so nobody even heard from him for more than three months. <gasps> and so they didn't know if he was alive or dead. And then eventually he turned up in the Atlantic when he was spotted, he was spotted by a freighter there. And so it was big news on the Sunday Times. Knox Johnson is alive and he's going to be the first man home. Oh. Um, nobody knew where you were, so nobody knew where Crowhurst was. So his third option that he came up with was, to, if you think about the route, was instead of going down the coast of Africa and round uh, Cape Horn, he went the other way. Well, he just crossed the Atlantic. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like the cross-country run at school, you know, when you don't want to do it. So you, you go, dip out, you dip grab out, a pint and wait for them to come. Wait for them to come down and, then, yeah. just join, and yeah. then just join in and at the back. Like, oh, hard race. Oh, yes, hard yeah, race. Yeah. Exactly. So he was going to do That was his plan. His plan was to hang around off the coast of South America and wait for the guys to come round and then tag along at the back. Because remember, he knew he wasn't going to win, but he only had to finish to keep his money. Right. Because he, he didn't have to win. He didn't have to win. Just had to finish to, for, oh, under the terms of his favorite. under the terms of his loan. And he knew that if he came in last, nobody would check too carefully about where he had or hadn't been. His log because he was lost, so nobody would mind. Yeah, no. Yeah, okay. But he would get to keep his house and his business. So as the race comes to a conclusion, we have Knox Johnson in the lead, but going slowly. We have Matessier rapidly catching him up in, in, wonderful a, time. In, in a faster boat, and he got round Cape Horn, and he was chasing back up the Atlantic uh, after Knox Johnson. So not only was he probably going to be the fastest guy, but he would he quite possibly would have beaten Knox Johnson. Could have overtaken at the last moment. Yeah, there were some projections that suggested he would beat him by a few days. But of course, there's so many variables, you could never know. You don't know where they you are. Never, you, know, you never know. <laughs> but there, it was possible he might have beaten him. And then you've got Tetley coming in third behind Matisse. And up. he's on for third place and a very honourable finish. And it possibly he could even have been faster than Matisse because he did, was making good progress, a good time. Okay. And you've got Crowhurst, who's basically decided to cheat. Okay. <laughs> 
Kurt is chilling. He's, he's hanging around waiting for the guys to come round. Right. Okay? Then the next interesting development is, and this is classic, is that when Mottissier goes past Cape Horn, he decides he's not going to head up the Atlantic back to England. He's going to go around the world again. What? What? <laughs> Because, that was so, really so, honestly the last thing I thought you were going to say. He said, I am I am happy at sea, I'm going to save my soul. That's okay. what he said. Yeah. I'm happy at sea, I'm gonna save my soul. I'm going round again. I'm going round again. Let's go round again. So he ducks out of the How race. How many months in is that? Seven months? Seven, seven or eight months at sea. Oh, yes, he didn't gosh. fancy going home. And it starts to get squeaky for Crowhurst now because there's only three people left. And Nigel is now on for the fastest time because Matessier's dropped out. He was a lot faster than Knox Johnson in his trimaran. Okay. So he looked like he was going to make the fastest time. And so Crowhurst was thinking it'd still be okay. I'll sneak in behind Tetley yeah. and it'll all be fine. Still I'll still no keep my care. money. Now, Tetley has done a brilliant job getting around Cape Horn in his trimaran. But as I mentioned, it was made of plywood. Right. <laughs> the cheapest wood you can get from Home Depot. And, <laughs> and, not, and not really suitable for the Southern Ocean. So his boat was starting to fall apart. <laughs> Oh my God. On his radio, he was told that Crowhurst was just behind him, sailing so in a similar boat. Um, oh. And so he couldn't afford to hang around. And so he pushed, instead of saying, right, this boat is nearly dead. I need to just nurse it home. All I've got to do is get home. I'm going to get the fastest time because he was like two months ahead right. of ahead uh -huh. of Knox Johnson's time. He wasn't like a few yeah. miles ahead. He was in a different league in terms of his speed. Because he thought that Crowhurst was just behind him, he went hell for leather and pushed his boat um, and didn't didn't slow down. He just set all his put all his sail up because he had to keep going. He had to stay ahead of Crowhurst, even though Crowhurst hadn't even left the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> and so Tetley's boat sank oh. a thousand miles from home, <gasps> a thousand miles from home in a thirty thousand mile oh race. God. He sailed twenty nine thousand miles in a plywood trimaran. Plywood trimaran. And, and he was on course to set the first solo circumnavigation record and he sank oh, that was because he thought he was being chased by a man who hadn't even done it hadn't even done it thank goodness he was picked up so he he okay. didn't he, he, didn't, he, didn't he wasn't die. no he didn't die but his boat sank and that was the end of his race and because he was just the guy that sank and didn't finish he never got any credit at all for oh. what he achieved and there's a tragic end to that which i'll come to in just a sec oh. then there was a big disaster for crowhurst because um he was going to oh, be then on for the, the fastest, fastest time, time. <gasps> Only two guys left in the race. And oh. so uh, Knox Johnson was almost home by then. He was, in fact, I think he was home by the time this all this happened. He'd got home. He'd set his time of 300 and something days. He was the first man and he'd been lauded into Plymouth with a huge flotilla of boats and welcomed home as a hero, which, he, you know, he was the first man ever to sail solo around the world. So he was, a, a, was and still is a hero. He's still very much alive. Oh, good. My interest in this race came because when I picked up the boat that I now own from Portsmouth Harbour in yeah. September 2017, on the same finger pontoon as me was this beautiful old uh, sailing boat called Suheili. And so oh. I Googled it and I discovered that this was the first boat that had ever sailed solo around the world. Oh, wow. So I was on, Johnson's boat. I was on the same... Yeah, he's restored it and he still sails it. That's a pretty cool piece of history still floating around. Yeah, so he was welcomed back home to to Well to done, Plymouth. Robert. So there was Crowhurst, still out there in the Caribbean, actually. Filled with a cold dread. With a cold dread that when he got home, all his log books would be examined. They would know that he cheated and he would uh, lose all his money anyway. And be really embarrassed. Yes, and he would also be a complete pariah. Yeah. Uh, for what he had tried to do. So nobody knows what happened to him, but his boat was found. Uh, by the trimaran. A, his trimaran was found some weeks later uh, with nobody aboard. <gasps> oh, 
Oh, he dipped. He'd written a lot of stuff in his logbook, which had become increasingly crazy. He'd obviously oh. more or less sort of lost his mind with the pressure of what he was trying to do and, and, and the awful problem that he'd, he'd set for himself. <gasps> And so it's always been assumed that he stepped off the boat. I mean, I won't go into all the stuff that he wrote. It's all about him being a cosmic being and so on. That story, the Crowhurst story, is quite famous. It's just recently been a film with Rachel Weiss and Colin Firth called The Mercy. So Robin Knox Johnson won both. And he actually donated his £5,000 prize money to Donald Crowhurst's widow. Aww. Um, Good guy, move. Shows, shows what a gent he is. Martessier carried on sailing and eventually he... Well, he had to save his soul. Most of the others who'd pulled out went on to do various other things. But Nigel Tetley never really recovered from the disappointment of um, mm. unjustly having to sink a thousand miles from home. Oh. And he actually committed suicide a couple of years later. Oh, and that sucks. For me, he's the sort of unknown tragedy of the race, I think, because I actually think what he did was absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. In terms of his sailing ability, and I suppose it doesn't make uh, as good a movie, I suppose. Uh, no, so he's the, the he, is, he is the forgotten man. So a pretty incredible thing, you know, first guy to sail around the world in three hundred odd days, and that happened within a, a, a few weeks of the moon landing. <laughs> and we had enough technology to get these live pictures of people walking on the moon. Allegedly, and the guy who was sailing around the world. We did not have a faintest clue where he was for three months. That's fun. That was fantastic. It was very good. I'm just going to start off with a base of seven. So many incredible characters and twisty turnsies. <laughs> I'm going to add three for every 10,000 miles they had to sail. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to add two just for the mad Frenchman and his catapult. <laughs> <laughs> and then I am going to take away three points for the suicide because that is depressing. That was um, sad. That's on you, Chris. I'm going to give you nine points for each of those wild and crazy guys. I love any story about just sort of like hubris of just like yeah. sort of like upper middle class, like merchant dudes being like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, be fine. <laughs> yeah, Who needs experience? Oh, yeah. oh, I could. Yeah, I could do that. That'd be fine. Uh, so I'm going to give you another five points for that. I am going to take away a point because you don't know where Crowhurst is. Because I think he's probably alive and he might be Mitch McConnell. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. <laughs> really? Yeah, about Crowhurst. Uh, he was, I think, 36. Yeah, so he could still very much be alive and ruining the Senate. Pretty similar age to Mitch McConnell. But you know what? I'm going to round it back up and I'm just going to say I'm going to give you five points just for like the sheer dad energy that the story has brought to the podcast which i think we've been missing for like the past 37 episodes we haven't had that's true we haven't had we this haven't like had dad that. power and i'm so yeah. glad that you could bring that <laughs> the grandest london tavern are you guys ready oh yeah. yes yes first of all chris because we haven't gotten to get into it How's your quarantine been? Oh, yeah, that's true. How are you quarantine. feeling? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I just hate the whole coronavirus thing. I think it sucks. And, I love um, it. <laughs> uh, I'm prob probably on the high side of medium risk. You know, I turned 60 next year. Mm -hmm. I take medication for high blood pressure, which is not supposed to be a good thing in relation to COVID. Yeah. With a bit of luck, I'd fight it off. But then, you know, there are quite a few people in a similar, with a similar profile to me who failed to do so. Yeah. And so you find yourself doing stuff like putting your affairs in order. You start choosing your hymns. <laughs> oh my God. Well, Chris, that makes me feel super awkward about the transition I'm about to make, which is I want to talk about restaurants. Yes, great. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but uh, 
I feel like restaurants are like one of the things that I really miss. Yeah, I miss them. Yeah. I always knew that I liked, you know, going out to eat, but I, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about like what makes going out to eat so special or fundamentally different. You know, I've known people who like don't like to go out to eat that much. And I, for them, they're like, well, why would I do that when I could just make something at home? And I'm like, no, but it's like a whole thing. It's a whole experience. You have like yeah. an ambiance. You have a, a sort of like curated, experiential sight, sound, smell, taste type thing coming together, which is why I think it's really cool and what I really miss. So do you guys ever think about where restaurants came from? When did people get that idea? Yeah, like- or like just what are like all of the sort of like social and political and economic factors that would lead to... So thinking backwards, because I think about this a lot too, even separate from COVID, it's just wild to me to think about how now in 2020, in the modern era, you just go to a grocery store and you can get like basically any food in the world. Anything you want. Yeah, right. And like if you put all of human history on a timeline, it's like just the very last bit of the timeline is the part where you could literally eat anything that you want at any time. It's not all people. I'm, you know, I'm not so naive to think it's all people, but it's in developed countries, it's most people, right? Like most yeah, people can I go remember to a grocery at, store. At Christmas, my my grandma, my granny, told me about the first time she had a avocado when she was practicing medicine just after the war. Hmm. Yeah, like I- And she called same- it an avocado pear. <laughs> the same way that like, you know, uh, aviation is, you know, like what, like a hundred years old and some change. And before that, it was like unlikely that you would, unless you were aristocratic, that you would ever go to another country or across continents. One thing was it's horrendously dangerous. I mean, you're, you're yeah. nowadays, when you, if you travel to a relatively nearby country, you just think, oh, okay, I'm just going there. Whereas there, you know, the chance of being shipwrecked in the 19th century were really high. Yeah. <laughs> when I would hear about aristocrats going from one court to another, like following, you know, a royal person, mm-hmm. like aristocratic women didn't like do a lot by design. And they're like, oh, you're going to be <laughs> yeah. on a boat for like three months. Like what the, what's it been like? Like what boats yeah. were like then and what aristocratic oh. women were like then? And they're just like, oh, you're going to like chill on a boat for like three months and you might die. They must have had an amazingly high boredom threshold compared to what we're used to now because it's like days and days of doing nothing doing nothing and nowadays we have so many distractions on tap Mm -hmm. oh yeah i think i would have like as you guys say uh lost the plot yes indeed yeah bring it back to food I think it's so fascinating. I also, I think, you know, even some of it, especially in America, because we are so gross about the way that we utilize agriculture. Because I, I don't know if like you've told your dad, but like when I lived in Paris. No, I haven't yet let him know that. So you, didn't want, you guys don't talk about that? Is that Texas? No, no, not Paris, Texas. <laughs> I remember noticing the supermarkets in France, and I wonder if it's similar in England. They had much more seasonal produce and much less of like the year round produce. So like right now, if I go into HEB, I can get late summer, early fall produce, which is what it is right now. But I can also get everything that normally grows in like the spring summer and winter yeah absolutely anything and i found that in paris it wasn't as readily available or also it looked like very small and sad and like i was like (laughs) what why isn't this pump full of hormones and like big and juicy for me so thinking about all these things working backwards i'm like okay we don't think about it this way now we think of it as more utility but a restaurant is in essence a luxury right you have to be Mm -hmm. past the point of survival sustenance 
to start to think about how you want to experience food or how you want to have like food as a delicacy. It's still not true for everyone in the world, but a large part of human history, it just wasn't something that you took for granted, even if you were employed, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So I tried to work backwards to find the answer to this. And as usual in history, the answer is disputed, but there's some really interesting stuff that I found along the way. So the first one, I think this is one that a lot of people think about or have maybe heard of, which is the ancient Roman Thermopyleums, which are, some people say are the precursor to the first, to restaurants, but I would say they're Mm. actually the precursor to Qdoba or like Chipotle. (laughs) Because, (laughs) so imagine a Roman city street. It's like very busy. It's very Mm -hmm. gladiator. Uh, And then on the sides- (laughs) Very gladiator. Very gladiator. (laughs) And on the sides, you'll see little open air kitchens with a counter facing the sidewalk. And Mm -hmm. you could literally just walk up to it, grab like some soup or some sustenance and then bounce out. So like, it was not a place where you like hung out and chilled and were served. Street food. Yeah. Yeah. catered to where people were at in that moment, which was if you were in the city, it's because you had something to do or you were important. Mm -hmm. And if you were really rich, you weren't going to go like hang out with the regular people in the streets. You were going to have food served to you in like a banquet or in your home. Sure. So you never cooked at all ever. (laughs) Right. So there was like, there would be no reason that you would want to go have this sort of uh, aesthetic experience. Every day is a restaurant. Yeah. Every day is a restaurant when you're rich and you're in ancient Rome. (laughs) Then... If you try to look this up, if you like, just look up what's the world's first restaurant, which don't, because it'll be a spoiler for this, but you're going to, you're <laughs> going to jump immediately from the Thermopyleums of like Greco-Roman times to 18th century France, which we'll get to. But okay. what's funny about this is that it actually jumps right over one of the most interesting things about the history of restaurants, which actually happened in the Song Dynasty in China. So in around like 900 in China, something really cool happened, which is that they really perfected rice and they haven't changed it since. (laughs) But they like, it was like this great sort of like two things happen at once. One is they came up with a new strain of rice that was like much less delicate before that rice was like, oh, like I'm such like a pretty princess and I'll, and like it was like (laughs) constantly rotting uh, before they could, because you know, like rice is grown in water essentially so it would it was really delicate if you didn't have just like almost like a almost like an orchid like if you didn't just have like the absolute perfect a table water everything the rice would rot and so there was widespread famine all across china then they came up with like this like buff rice right and this rice (laughs) sturdy rice sturdy rice there's the like ancestor of the rice that we still eat this was the rice that like figured it out so between that And then they developed a new irrigation system so that they could keep the sort of water level uniform in the rice paddies. Mm -hmm. That just changed everything. And like almost overnight in the Song Dynasty, they went from widespread famine to just everybody had enough to eat. Um, Even like all the way down to like the lowest classes. And this changed everything because now, like we said, we've reached like a threshold where people start to think, okay, well, it's I'm a not given. Gonna starve. Yeah, it's a given that I'm going to have something to eat. So like, what do I want to eat? <laughs> <laughs> the reason that sometimes this doesn't come up as quote unquote, the world's first restaurants is because similar to the Thermopyleums, it's still sort of a fast casual thing where you, mm-hmm. you don't have some of these things that we consider really important 
facets of a restaurant like service a part of the experience yeah the sort of like you don't sit down at a table have someone serve you the other big thing is a menu the idea of a menu oh yeah is sort of like integral to the idea of a restaurant and they didn't have that but what they did have that didn't come about i mean almost until like the 20th century was they had regional restaurants so you could be in a city in china and then you could go to a nanshi restaurant which was a southern food restaurant a big oh. restaurant which was a northern food restaurant or chuanfan which was Sichuan food so this was still mostly for wealthy people which is a different again like kind of a departure from thermopoliums because it was it was a thing to do like if you were a family of a state official or an elite or an aristocratic family, right. you would go sample all these different delicacies from the different regions of China. And that was a status thing to do. Uh, oh. But you still didn't get to choose what you ate. Right. That came later. <laughs> it was like, this is it. So then now we do skip all the way to the 18th century in Paris, Natch. And I think you guys <laughs> kind of touched on this a little bit when you were guessing what the topic was. But obviously mm. along the way, especially in like medieval Europe, there are taverns and pubs. Yeah. Those are obviously precursors to restaurants, but they're not considered yeah. the first restaurants because they're primarily about drinking or about lodging. So like if the primary motivation was lodging and they're like, oh, well, if you're going to be here for nine hours, you're probably going to get hungry. You know, my wife makes a pretty good like meat pie. Then it's yeah. not exactly the same thing as a restaurant. Right. So that comes in, in the 1800s, and this part's fun. Okay. There's some dispute about which one was the first restaurant. The first restaurant in the world, you First saying. restaurant in the world was in Paris, but there is still a dispute, depending on who you talk to, about what was the first restaurant in Paris in the 18th century. Okay. The first one that people talk about is an establishment that was started by a man named Monsieur Boulanger. If you look at the last name, it's the same as Boulangerie, which is still... I'm going to say Boulangerie. Yeah, Boulangerie, which is still a type of establishment where you can go get food. Is that why it's called that? Yes. <gasps> so, That's so cool! He's the first recorded person to use the term restaurant because restaurer is a French verb meaning to restore, and it's spelled that way. So a restaurant oh. is a restorative. So it oh. was Monsieur Boulanger's restaurant meaning you can come get mr boulanger's restoratives over here at this restaurant yeah i will make you some delicious food to restore you yeah you can come here and get some and get some nice treats so it was establishment this, a restaurant so it's this really novel concept the reason that it's often considered one of the first restaurants is because he had the first menu and again this okay. is the part that really starts to revolutionize things is the idea that you would go to a place and pick out what you want to eat. So that was a big deal. Now there are some like food historians or French historians who say that Monsieur Boulanger is a legend. Oh, <laughs> uh, so he's not real. Yeah, they're he's like, oh, yeah, you know, Monsieur Boulanger, he's like up there with King Arthur. He's not real. It's just, it's just yeah. a big restaurant trying to give you like some cool guy <laughs> to think about. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. so if like you Ronald are, McDonald. Yeah, Ronald McDonald. Yeah, if you are a Boulanger <laughs> truther and you think that Monsieur Boulanger was not real, then you are a fan of the 1782 first restaurant, which was called La Grande Taverne de Londres, the Grand ah. London Tavern. 
in Paris. In Paris. Oh, ah. I was wrong. It wasn't in London. It was okay. a real bait and switch. One of the oldest restaurants or, or, you know, very successful old restaurants in London was the Café de Paris. Oh, that's Oh, fun. my gosh. Y'all, y'all okay. just been obsessed with each other since, like, the beginning of time. It's a love-hate relationship. Very true. In in Piccadilly. (laughs) In Piccadilly, okay. So uh, there's this dude, and this is fun for me. His name is Brila Savarong. And I was like, oh, I recognize that name. I'm pretty sure there's like a metro stop in Paris named that. But I never knew who it was. And he was a French politician in the 18th century who was obsessed with eating, which I was like, my man. So he, his writing. Monsieur Creasute. Mr. Creosote, yeah. yeah. So he, uh, his writing is some of like the earliest and like most studied writings about both like French cuisine in the 18th century. And then he wrote a lot about this tavern because he, so he was just loved into it. it. He wrote this thing in 1825, so later, called the Physiologie du Goût, the science of taste. And it was a philosophical document about food and, and eating and all these things. But he loved this place and he wrote that it was, it had this recipe of smart waiters, a choice of wines, elegant surroundings, <laughs> and reliable food. So this was the thing reliable that was Reliable food. Reliable food. So this <laughs> thing that was just so revolutionary at the time. It's still sort of catered towards upper class and elite people, at least until the like, French Revolution starts. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, we were watching Hamilton last night. Uh-huh. And there's that bit in there, as so I was saying, his, uh, this guy we made the deal with, his head is in a basket. Would you like to pick it up and ask it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I, I know it's, uh, it's funny how long it took me to really connect the dots that like the American Revolution was in like the 1770s-ish. Uh, the French helped. And then the French Revolution was in the 1790s. And uh, we were real like, <laughs> um, yeah, the Americans were like, oh, we're busy. <laughs> oh gosh, Ooh. we're like really new and young, and we're just babies, and we cannot come help you. <laughs> but like, thanks for all those boats. That was great. <laughs> Back to this tavern. It's mostly for elite people until the French Revolution, and then you have this rise of like the bourgeoisie, right? And like the sort of this like middle working class. And they're like, hey, we want restaurant too. So I want that. I, I too want restaurant. So then you start to get these kind of mid-level places where you can go. You have a limited menu. It's still not as huge be for a lot of uh, structural reasons. So then this goes back to like the working backwards. Like what is one of okay. the number one things that transformed the way that we eat or even like buy food or move food. Refrigeration? Yes, ice. So before that, you would have to have like food nearby. Wow, what a sentence. If you were incredibly wealthy, then you might have land where you could cultivate vegetables and herbs and fruits Mm -hmm. and also pigs and cows and all those things. Or you might be so wealthy that you go out on hunts and get big game and bring it back and have this feast. So Mm -hmm. in the 1800s, when ice becomes this huge market, and that in and of itself could be like an insane what topic, because this is like the 19th century deadliest catch of just like, I'm big, strong man. I'm going to go out to like the you know northern reaches of the continent or in america i'm gonna go to the great lakes and i'm gonna like fuck up some ice and like chop it all up up and bring it back as fast as i possibly can 
right? And then they would Whoa. just have literally like, you know, you've heard the term ice boxes, just like a big box right. of ice for as long as you can keep it. So you'd have just like this giant chunk of ice to like put your food near, but it changed everything. So that happens at the same time as the industrial revolution. And then you have, instead of you have only like elite people working in cities who have again, like big grounds and land and things like that, or people who are working mostly sort of like provincial jobs on that land for landowners. Mm -hmm. Now you have people living in cities, working city jobs, working in factories. These people can't eat at home the way that you would if you were one of those two former things. So now they right. need an option to eat while they're in the city working. Oh. And that's how you get like all like these all days, right? So this idea of like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you can come get this food. That goes in through the turn of the century. And of course, you still have these fancy upper crust restaurants developing at the same time. But this is how we get restaurants that... <laughs> well, rich people got to figure out how to be better. Yeah, they're like, oh, <laughs> wait, my pores that work at my factory get to go to a restaurant? I want restaurant, but make it fancy. So the way that they <laughs> made it fancy is, again, the thing, the way that they made it fancy is the thing that we now take for granted at almost like every level of culture in modern times, which is they were like, oh, well, they eat food that like, they eat like whatever they can get, right? So it's like beans, it's bacon and cured meats. It's right. hard bread or like bread that can be made that day. For us, it is, uh, it's food from different places. Medicine. So seafood, yeah, big game is a big one because it means that you were wealthy enough to hunt or the restaurant could employ like hunters to go out. Mm -hmm. It's seafood because seafood, because of how difficult it would be, again, you have to have a boat full of ice which was wild at that time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Seafood is, that's why seafood now has a connotation with being like an upscale thing, right? It's still, mm. it's still relatively hard to trans transport, but it started as like, oh, the fact that you could have fresh fish was just like wild. Um, and then there was a time where restaurants especially in like big cities like London or New York, we're fighting to have them like rarest delicacies, which kind of sounds sort of familiar, like to be the most creative and yep. weird. So it's like going out and searching for truffles or searching for like unknown combinations of herbs. People were getting kind of sick, but it was fine. Who cares? Because we didn't have the, uh, <laughs> we didn't have, like, the health codes yet, which brings right. me to my last really fun little tidbit, which is, and again, I don't, I wonder how much of this is like a thing in the UK. So you'll have to tell me, but you know how like, or maybe you don't like classic Americana, like fifties diners, the vibe mm -hmm. is very, it's almost sterile, right? It's like all the like metal and like plastic yeah. covered everything. Stereotypical American diner. Have you ever wondered why that was like such a style in a diner when it's such, such a departure from the way restaurants have always looked and even like look no, now. I guess I just always kind of thought it was looking back, I guess you just kind of equate it with the fifties style of like the chrome and the like leather. the atomic yeah, yeah. age type stuff. So that's definitely part of it. Another part of it is that there were no like health codes until a little bit later. And so people, that was around the time that people first started to get freaked out about like, wait, I'm going to have somebody else make my food but I don't know what, what they're doing. They could, they could do literally anything. So right. there was this push to make restaurants look very like clean and sterile to give you this oh. like illusion of health and like maybe like see. associated Safety. with like medical places. Just to make people feel safe. Yeah. yeah. Security theater. Security theater, exactly. And then that that's brings so cool. us now to 
the level of food security that we have that you're just like, what do I want? Do I want like a burger? Do I want tacos? Yeah. Do I want like what, what regional cuisine from around the world do I want at what price point with what level of like aesthetic experience? You can get anything you want. That is wild. And get it delivered as well now. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go get it myself. <laughs> or I went to a place in San Francisco because, you know, they're all like tech monsters uh, where yeah. it was an entirely automated restaurant. So, and I'm sure they probably have those in like Japan too, but you'd go and you'd like interact with like, it was like a big computer thing and you'd pick what you wanted. And then they had a conveyor, they were like grain bowls. So you'd pick like the grain and then like the protein and the vegetables and stuff. And then they had like a little automated thing that would just make it for you. And then you'd That's go sit so down. so wild. It was really weird. Mm. It's one of the only places yeah. you could get lunch for like under $10. So oh, it's like, we're yeah, coming real sense. circle now where we went from, did you get enough to eat? to is the food good, to what was the experience of the food. And now we're coming all the way back around, which is like, is the food fast enough? Can you get it yeah. fast enough to go do your Can other stuff? Can you get stuff? it fast mm. and cheap? Yeah. I think one of the, the, the um, things in the pandemic and not going to restaurants uh-huh. is it's kind of made me realize how conditioned we are to what you have to pay to eat in them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly if they're anyway half decent. And for me, there's an interesting contrast with you know your sense of cost but other things in life. Mm-hmm. So behind me is an ironing board because they were doing making some clothes and stuff earlier. And every now and again, the iron falls off the ironing board and breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go, oh, we have to buy a new iron. That's 38 pounds as it, from Amazon. That's terrible. But you go into a restaurant and you have a, you know, a couple of starters and a made course that put it in four pounds over. By four, and the bill comes, it's 126 quid. You go, oh, that wasn't very nice, was it? No, it was a bit average and mediocre. <laughs> That's mine. 126 quid no problem yeah it's true yeah <laughs> you just because you know that's what you knew before you went yeah. they don't they, that you would have to pay that so your perception of it is not is not any different from what from the from, from the reality yeah. i think my my yeah, yeah. i will um and ah over a shirt that i will probably have for about 10 years yes so, mm-hmm. oh, 50, 50 pounds 50 dollars oh, oh yeah, that's a lot much. that's a lot and then you're yeah. in a restaurant and you're like oh this wine's only 65 <laughs> yeah yeah and, and it's going to be gone in 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> in 20 minutes i'll be ordering another one yeah yeah another we have completely different standards things that are actually going to last us for ages and things that we're going to consume that night these fleeting experiences yes, it's, quite, it's interesting there's been at least one time during covid when I was, I think we were feeling particularly sad that we decided to splurge and we probably spent close to $100 just getting food delivered. Because it's like we got it yeah. from like a nice place and we got like yeah. the cocktail yeah. kit, you know, that they'll send home yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. Whereas, and then yesterday, because we're redoing our living room right now, because like, what else are you going to do? And we went to go look <laughs> at, we went to this like vintage shop that had these really nice furnishings and they had this beautiful like mid-century coffee table where the top of it was shaped like this like beautiful like banana leaf and it was like all gold mm-hmm. like kind of carved mm. and it was $90 and I was like $90 for a beautiful one-of-a-kind table that I'm gonna <laughs> use for the next 15 years go fuck yourself I'm not gonna spend dollars <laughs> on that like and now, exactly. like, now you're saying this I'm like yeah. wow that was really stupid yeah. spend a hundred dollars <laughs> on the ribs instead yeah, yeah whatever um, they were yeah well and something that Something that I feel like has been entering the public conversation, maybe it's taken a pause during COVID a little bit, at least in Austin, but I wonder if you guys have similar conversations because of the really kind of, you know, uh, multi, the like very diverse population in like London and that part of England is we have conversations or it enters the public talk, enters like the zeitgeist sometimes talk about like, 
what you charge for different cuisines. So mm. I think about it like, um, Ellie, I don't know if you remember this, but you know uh, Elizabeth Street Cafe, that Vietnamese restaurant yeah. on South yeah, Coast? Yeah, yeah. It's this Vietnamese restaurant. It's really delicious, really good food. They have, and so like their banh mi probably averages like eight to $14 a, a sandwich. And their pho averages like, I don't know, like 12 to, they all the way up to, they have a $24 pho because it has lobster in it. So they have like a lobster pho. And people got really mad where they were like oh well there's all these like mom and pop Vietnamese shops around Austin because we have a big Vietnamese population where you can get like a two dollar pho or like you know mm-hmm. like a 350 mm-hmm. for a banh mi like why am I gonna go to like this bougie part of town spend 22 dollars on a pho it's there's like an implication that there's like a racist element to it to which then I think the interesting thing is like well why like why will you spend like 45 dollars on a French plate which is still right. meat and vegetables at the end of the day, but you're incensed at the idea like, of spending $20 on Vietnamese food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, how do we decide like which cuisines should be expensive? I definitely had like a bit of culture shock when I came back from Thailand because I got so used to paying 50 cents mm-hmm. for a meal Yeah. that I would be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You want me to give you four Great British Pounds for a sandwich? <laughs> and the guy at the show would be like, I don't care. Give, take it all no, Yes, like, please. I had reverse culture shock because uh, when I was living in Paris, I was 20. So when I was living there, it was my first experience being able to go to bars and like legally, you know, buy drinks. And it was, oh, yeah. and Paris is one of the most expensive cities in the world. So all the drinks were like, 10 to 14 euro which at that time was like yeah it sucked which was like uh, (laughs) almost like 20 bucks and then I moved back to the United States and like that same month I turned 21 and my friend took me out to a bar and I was like oh I'll have you know like a vodka soda and he's like oh that's three and I was like three dollars like three (laughs) dollars Uh, and I do think that was where all the problems started. Yeah, three dollars. Oh, great! I can have seven of those. Line them up, barman. Score me Watch immediately. Else. I will. So, I love a French-English rivalry. Yes. Five points for the French restaurant named after London and the London restaurant named after France. Hell I yeah. think that's great. I'm going to give you a further three points for the Chinese rice story. I had no idea about that. It was very interesting. It's fun. And then I'm going to give you a further three points because of the, <laughs> the fact that the French sort of brought around their own revolution. Yeah, that was embarrassing. America. And I'm not going to take anything away. Oh, that's beautiful. I love food and I miss it. And I so as you. my... So honor food and restaurants. I'm not going to take any points away from you. Remember when we used to go to restaurants? I we know. Used to have so places. <laughs> Dad. Uh, I don't understand how this scoring system works. Very it seems extremely <laughs> random. It's completely so, arbitrary. Um, I'm going to give you uh, 10 points because I learned a lot of things that I didn't know already. Oh, cool. And That's tough to teach. And because things, I don't so. like these things to be too complex, I'm going to give 10 bonus points for Monsieur, Monsieur Boulanger. Who is almost certainly a myth, but it tickled my taste buds. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you for being on the show with us and bringing your knowledge and your powerful dad yeah. wisdom. It was a great pleasure, and uh, Jesse, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but, we'll know. get her on there. You won't be the first, but you could be the quickest. 
There you go. Oh my gosh. And it's come real circle. Gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of What. And uh, Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold. And if you hurt, well, no, it'll be gone by the time you go there. But if you go to my highlights on Instagram and you go to my food section, you can see Connor and I came up with the most epic hangover cure last night, yesterday. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it. It was is a it- sweet potato hash and he made an onion gravy for it. And it was like, ooh. And we did that in a fried egg delicious. and a blue cheese for like dank. Ooh, for some dank. For some dank. That sounds uh, amazing. It, it cured it right up. That is famously not on social media, which I think is amazing. I quit Facebook. I was on there, but I quit a month ago. Oh, well, that's healthy. Uh, the quality of debate has left a lot to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> It seems to be basically about point scoring and insulting people and emoting yeah. and claiming the moral high ground, For people sure. insulting each other. It's it's destructive and it's making me unhappy. So I thought I'm not going to do it anymore. Yes, king. a king in his own house. So rather than follow my dad on social media, just watch The Mercy in honor of him and his topic. It's really, <laughs> really. Or Deep Water. Or Deep Water. Yes. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and Redbubble. And you can find our site at those two girls.club if you wish to send us a message because we do always appreciate that. And we appreciate you for listening. And um, have a fantastic week. And I don't know, maybe go learn something. That's right. You gotta keep it loose, keep it tight, say your prayers at night. (laughs) (laughs) And scene.